Welcome to the Maintainable Software Podcast, where we speak with seasoned practitioners who have helped organizations work past the problems often associated with technical debt and legacy code. I'm your host, Robbie Russell. On this episode, we're joined by Eileen Ushatel, who is a senior systems engineer at GitHub and a member of the Ruby on Rails core team. Eileen Ushatel, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So last year, GitHub announced that they were able to upgrade to the most recent and stable version of Ruby on Rails, having been behind several major releases. You were a key member of that upgrade project, and I'd love to learn more about how you and your team approached such a project and how that might have been balanced when you're all, I'm assuming GitHub was also working on new features around the same time and how that kind of all worked out together in the end. But first, how do you describe technical debt? Technical debt is inevitable. You'll never have an application that doesn't have it. But technical debt that becomes burdensome is when you can't develop fast enough, your CI is slow, deployments are slow, and you realize that like your application has become this problem rather than your solution. And that's when you have to start addressing your technical debt. All right. So when it, when it came to working on the upgrade project, how did, how did you get introduced into that project in the first place? Was that one of your first big projects at GitHub? Yeah. So I started on the, we're now called app systems, but then we were called platform systems team. So when I started, there wasn't anyone who was full time on the Rails upgrade. It was a volunteer effort. I don't recommend that route for upgrades. Uh, it will never get done if you have it be a volunteer effort. I took on that project. I didn't realize it was going to take a year and a half. I just started with the build and it didn't boot when I first started. So Aaron and I, Aaron Patterson, he's also on my team. We like figured out why it didn't boot. It had to do with a route change. So we fixed that. And then there was some other reason it didn't boot. And it turned out there was a bug in Rails. So that was good. We fixed that. And then it was like, oh, here's 2000 failures to work on. So just started chipping away at those. All right. From a but kind of a process perspective, how did your team decide to, so you get those 2000 errors at that point or failing tests in your suite, I'm assuming. How did, how did you start going about like dividing and conquering that amount of work, knowing that there's like 2000 of things? Did you actually create 2000 tickets in, in your issue tracker or, or anything? Uh, not for the three, two to four oh upgrade. That was mostly me. So there wasn't anyone else doing work. We eventually had like, you know, a volunteer effort where people were like, oh, what can I work on? And so I would tell them like, work on this one because I'm not working on it. We didn't really have a process yet. And then so one during like a hack week, somebody was like, I want to help. And I was like, great, look, here's a bunch of failures. And he's like, no, I'm going to do something different. And so what he did was he made a, a tool in CI that we could create issues from the failures by adding a special label. And so it just like added a plus sign next to the failure and we would just hit the plus sign and then like group all the errors together for like that were the same and make issues for those. So that way we could assign work and we, we weren't duplicating our work. And so like that was sort of like a, a long ish process, but usually like when we have 2000 errors, the build like doesn't even finish. So we can fix those like really big ones, you know, the one that's like, there's 200 of the same failure. So we would like fix those before we declared the build ready for volunteers or by we, I mean, I would fix those big ones before we declared it ready for anyone else. And then once 
we could actually see the errors. It's hard to explain, but our CI groups them in these boxes when the build can't finish because there's too much output, because there's too many failures. You don't have those boxes. So once we could, once we could actually see the individual failures and not just the log, I would create issues for every single failure and then group them together. So we knew like, which, oh, all of these that are getting a 404 response are probably the same bug. So we'll fix that bug together as one. And so that way nobody was working on the same issue. Right. I know that that can be a challenge when we're working on, like we do upgrade projects for different clients as well. And I think sometimes there's the uh, kind of almost need to send someone out on kind of a, like an independent mission for a bit to try to figure out what's going on. Cause if you try to get too many people at the same time doing that, then you're potentially duplicating efforts and that's not super productive, I think for the team. And then so that process of starting to create issues came after the first big milestone. Is that something that for how long were you working in kind of a solo approach and, you know, tackling one issue after the next as, as they were popping up? It depended on the build. I think 4.0 was because 4.0 was already set up. That one was really easy to get booting again. Uh, it was just like, it was just a lot of route issues or whatever, because the routes changed from 3.2 to 4.0. 4.1 was the hardest. It probably took a few months. Because we we did something really bad. Our test framework directly mutates many test classes. And so Rails 4.1 required many test 5.7 or, or no, many test 5.1. And before that, we were using 4.7. So we literally had to rewrite our test framework to use Rails 4.1. Oh, wow. Okay. Did you approach that sort of when you're dealing with a, like a dependency like that? Was there conversations about trying to figure out ways to backport the mini test itself in a way to accommodate, or did you just try to figure out how to make everything work with the newest version of mini test? We tried it; it was impossible. We had to we had to like support two versions of mini test in the code base at once, and it was a nightmare. Uh, I still don't think that it's right. Like, <laughs> there's like still some things that I think that we never fixed, but nobody remembers what it used to be like, so it's fine. Um, but yeah, I don't, don't, don't mutate your mini test classes. Don't touch, do not touch mini test ever. And you know, looking through, uh, I was just reviewing your, uh, the article that you'd written, um, on the engineering, GitHub engineering blog about how you're supporting multiple versions. Is that something that you're still doing outside of most recent version and what's on master? Cause I know that there were some examples of where you had conditionals for different versions of rails, like approximately how many different versions were you trying to support in parallel? Uh, we would support up to three versions in parallel. So so 3.2 was in production. As soon as the 4.0 build was green, we would make that required for every push to GitHub. So you had to write code that passed in both, and that way we wouldn't have to deal with regressions. And then we would work on 4.1, but 4.1 would only run manually when we would run it. So really only like GitHub engineers who were building features had to deal with 3.2 and 4.0. And then when 4.1 was green, we deleted 4.0 and made 3.2 and 4.1 required and worked on 4.2. Once like we got to 4.2, we deployed that and then we did the same process for 4.2 to 5.2. A lot of people ask me like, why didn't we just go straight to 5.2? And I think that we would have never finished it because it, we would have like gotten to that mini test problem and said, this is too hard. Like we would have made no progress because it took a year and a half and it wasn't just a year and a half of doing upgrades. Like people see that and they're like, oh my God, like so long. And it's like, do you really think that we only did that for a year and a half? No, that's not true. 
from when I started to when I, to when we were on five, two, that was a year and a half. The, like, the biggest thing for us was preventing regressions as we made progress. Cause like, if we had just gone from three, two to five, two, we would have constantly been dealing with regressions and not knowing which version of Rails did this break on? Like, we'd have to like support like much more major changes between three, two and five, two. And our code base is so big that we just can't support that. But right now we're still supporting two versions, five, two and six. The six build is required right now. And we are having no regressions being introduced by anyone except for Rails. So that means that like we upgrade every week, we fix all the bugs, we fix Rails if it's broken, and then we merge that to master so that everyone has like that new version of Rails. And that means that when Rails 6 is released, we're going to be able to be on Rails 6 that day. Oh, wow. Okay. That's awesome. And, you know, I know that as a member of the Rails core team, has, has there been conversations about baking in some any sort of functionality within Rails to help developers with this kind of approach as well? Honestly, that's more on Bundler than on Rails. With Bundler, we had to hack it to support two gem files. And I know that there's an issue open on Bundler. I don't know if they're going to actually do it or not, but like if they could implement multiple gem files, that would seriously help Rails upgrades. It would improve that process drastically because like we can't upgrade Bundler without like rehacking it. And that sucks, but I'd rather monkey patch Bundler than fork Rails. So I'll take it. All right. That makes sense. Yeah, we're working on uh, some upgrade projects and it was a little bit of a fun challenge of trying to come up with ways to modify which gem file things are being used or to make that work there. So, all right. So, yeah, I think I've seen that issue too on the Bundler project, or at least the, the request to add that functionality. So when you're working on, you know, thinking more about your team's process, approximately how many people were working on the upgrade at any given throughout the process? Was there just a handful of people or were there, you mentioned there were volunteers. So did a lot of people contribute over the course of that year and a half of time period, not necessarily knowing that that wasn't how much time you actually spent on the upgrade, but as far as people that were part of part of the process? Yeah, so 3.2 to 4.2 was mostly me. I was only full-time engineer on it. Of course, Aaron helped like when I would get stuck on stuff, but he had other responsibilities to work on too. So there's like 10 people in the Rails team on GitHub, but like that was just, oh, hey, I have an afternoon. I'll like pick up an issue and work on it. It was easier to get volunteers as it like became more obvious that we were actually going to do it. I think there was a lot of skepticism about actually finishing it just because like there wasn't anyone before to drive that effort. You know, someone would be like, I really want to work on this, but I've got like a whole bunch of other stuff I have to do. It wasn't a priority for so long because there was so much other stuff to do that I think that it was people got excited when they saw it coming. They were like, oh my God, we might actually be on five two. Like I'll help out. Like I want to help it. So that was, that was fun. And then for the four, two to five, two, we had four full-time engineers and I acted as lead doing more working out process and doing reviews and like making sure that everything was solid, but not doing the actual upgrade because I didn't want to. I mean, I want, I wanted to see us on five too, but I was like, I'm going to burn out if I keep doing this because it's just, it's a lot of work. I can't do it by myself anymore. So. Really, I like, I went from pushing the effort forward by myself, mostly to pushing the effort forward with a team. And that's why the four two to five two was only five months. It was really fast. We actually did five one to five two in two weeks. Oh, wow. Okay. Thinking about the, um, without getting too far into the weeds and the, on the technical side of things, but when, you know, just as an overall concept for those listening that aren't familiar with Ruby on Rails or Rail, you know, or the specific framework in terms of, 
the project was basically several versions behind the what Rails had released the, for the community. And each major release, there's some new functionality or changes to how things work in the framework. And so GitHub needed to kind of support multiple versions at the same time to try to get through this process. And diving into the little bit of details here, approximately how many conditionals do you think you had throughout the app that were checking on things? And, and did that start to become a concern that that would become complicated to be like, oh, I, I know that I'm doing something special that's only going to work in Rails 5 here. Was there, when you're working on new features, were there just a lot of conditionals or were just like some common areas where you would see a lot of those, all right, this is 3.2 versus 4 or 5 type of versions? I cannot estimate the number of conditionals that there were. Like when we went on 4.1, we would delete the conditionals for 4.0. So we didn't just like leave it littered in the code base. And because we, were, we weren't running the 4.0 build anymore, we didn't care if it passed. We were never going to deploy 4.0. So we only really cared about moving forward. And sometimes if something was really major, we would just backport a monkey patch so that we could support it in multiple versions and like not have to do the conditionals. For the before filter changes, we waited until we were on 4.2 to actually do that work because we knew that the conditionals were just going to be like all over the place and we didn't want to duplicate all those filters and the callbacks. So we just waited. And that, that's the thing is you have to like, everything is just a trade-off of figuring out how long you want to wait to fix something. Some deprecations make sense to fix right away. Rails 6.1 has a deprecation. The validates uniqueness constraint requires you to pass case sensitive to it. But like that works on all the versions because it's just a keyword argument that gets ignored if it's not used by Rails. That way we don't have to add conditionals. We can just do the code for both. 5.2 and 6.1 and 6.0. Once we get to 6.1, it won't care anymore. And then we're just done with that. As you had, you know, a team kind of coming in and growing and kind of expanding in size over the course of that period, you know, what sort of processes did you, did your team experiment with outside of like look, using your build tool and then finding ways to find common errors? Were there any other processes that you put in place in terms of being able to measure progress as a team and like where, how far away you were? Or is it kind of always like, those questions of like, well, how long is a piece of a string if someone actually asked you on when, is, when will this, this release be done? Was that something you were able to kind of start projecting at all? It's not like we had a deadline. So it was totally directed by us because we hadn't stopped feature development and we hadn't stopped anything else. Like nobody was like, when's it going to be done? Because we weren't blocking anybody with it. It did actually get done a lot faster than I expected. Like 5.2 got done faster than I expected. And so it like was a little bit of scrambling to be like, oh, actually, I need all of you to stop what you're doing and test this thing. Um, but we had actually ended up with a really good process for that. We just assigned, we just said, hey, assign someone from your team to click test in this environment and just tell us if you found any bugs. And that's it. And so like we actually found only like two bugs in that process. So who knows the, that part of the code base better than the team that works on it? So it made sense for them to do that click testing instead of creating a team for click testing. And so that was a good process. And then in terms of other process we used, I mean, we our only like measurement of success was, is it, are the numbers of failures going down and are we done? I mean, we also wanted to deploy it with no downtime, which we did in both 4.2 and 5.2. The customer impact was so minimal that we did not even have a single incident during the deploys. Oh, it's always great when you have those rollouts and they're in insignificant in memory. Like you don't remember that much about it because everything just worked. And that's, yeah, those are great. We were so careful for the 4.2 rollout that afterwards in the like review, I said, we took too long to roll it out because we were so careful. 
I think it took us a month or two to roll that out with, because we were like, we've never done this before. We don't know what's going to happen. So then five two, we did a lot faster because I was like, I don't, I'm totally confident that if I can deploy at 7 a.m. East Coast and it doesn't break, that'll be totally fine. West Coast. And we did that process. So like for four two, we would deploy it at late at night, Australia time, and then ramp up to different time zones. And we didn't really do that with 5.2. It, it didn't seem necessary. We just, we literally found zero bugs in the Australia time zone. So it was a waste of, no, it wasn't a waste, but I felt that 4.2 was so smooth and we found not, we didn't find enough stuff in the off hours. I mean, GitHub doesn't really have off hours, but we have hours with less traffic in the off hours that I felt that we were going to find a lot more faster in the, the on hours. As long as we knew it wasn't going to take the site down, at that point, it was like, just, just deploy it. Especially when like, if you deploy off hours and you're like, I found one failure. So then you fix that, you deploy that. Two days later, you deploy again, you find one failure. I'd rather find six at once and then just fix those and then deploy again. than find one every day for like three weeks. <laughs> right. <laughs> Were there some processes that your team experimented with that you ended up not keeping keeping for too long because it didn't really get adopted or um, didn't find a lot of value into it outside of like maybe how you're approaching the rollouts? If a, pro- if a process didn't work, we just stopped doing it. But one of the things we did that was kind of different was uh, we created these weekly branches. So all changes for Rails would go into one branch and we'd deploy that at once. And that made it easier, like, because we, we'd fix like 20 bugs in a day, in a week. And so like, we don't want to do 20 deploys for something that's not even in production. So we would just like roll them into one and like deploy on Friday and start a new branch that everything from Monday to Friday went in and we would just do that process every week. Nice. And when you did that rollout, were you doing any sort of like incremental rollouts or was it basically where you flipped the switch and everybody, all user traffic was uh, interfacing with that new version of Rails? Uh, We do Canary deploys that are 1% of hardware boxes, whatever you want to call them. 1% of environments that you deploy to. We don't have anything in between. So it's 1% or 100%. So a lot of people might be looking at GitHub from the outside and be like, oh, yeah, we need to do a big upgrade like this. We don't have the, say, engineering focus of our organization because you know, like, like a GitHub does, or at least perceived to have. The fact that you could not worry about timelines in the same way that some other developers might feel pressure in their organization. And so sometimes versions get pushed back and for a lot of reasons. And then it's hard for them to advocate for taking care of these problems. What sort of advice might you offer to them on either to help get them to work with their product managers uh, or management to help them make a good case for why they should continue sitting back on these older versions? So the biggest reason, so if you're a manager and you're like, hey, it's going to take me four engineers at this number of hours, this number of days, and it's going to cost me this much money to upgrade, you can measure that. But you know how much a not upgrading costs? A lot more. You can't measure it. Oh, you have to rebuild infrastructure that exists in Rails because you're not on a new version. That's a lot of money. Oh, you have a security issue that you can't patch. That's a lot of money, especially if you get owned. You're hiring junior engineers who've never worked on Rails 3.2. That costs more money to get them up to speed. So like all of that stuff costs so much more than just biting the bullet and doing the upgrade. And then once you do that upgrade, stay upgraded because the cost is cumulative and you're just adding more and more and more on top. I don't, I can't even measure what it cost GitHub in terms of not upgrading. 
the stuff that we added onto the application that we're still trying to get rid of because we were on an old version, I find a new thing every day that I'm like, why is this in here? And it's just because we were on an old version and we had no other choice. But like, if you upgrade and you stay up to date with Rails or any framework, like this is true of any technology, staying behind is eventually going to bite you in some way that you can't even predict. That's true. And and I know that like when we're working on different projects, we'll often find out that maybe some of the original developers that were on the project had left. And so maybe gotten a little bit behind by a version or two and then new people come in and they're not able to really figure out how to navigate the process of selling their, you know, the different stakeholders in the organization on investing on some of these problems because they're like, well, it's been running fine, right? Do I get new features from this? Or I think it's just like a, a communication thing that I think often doesn't um, happen or they start to interpret that as a, no, we're not going to deal with this right now, maybe someday. And then people stop asking about it and then you fall further and further behind. I mean, even GitHub, they fell behind. There's probably a lot of factors that go into play for that, I'm sure. So one of the nice things about hearing about how GitHub was able to do this is that I think it gives hope to some people that are really far back behind on some things like this. And like, there is a path and there are some approaches and not everybody was thinking about dual booting as much before. I think like Shopify had, or, um, had talked about it a bit as well and how that worked out for them. And we've been doing kind of some similar approaches to that on some of the projects that we work on. I'm always curious about how to sell certain types of stakeholders on these things because it's not always security is often a really good thing to bring up because that can scare people in a certain way. It's like, well, there are known security vulnerabilities with your version of Ruby on Rails or whatever platform you're using. How are you going to explain that to, say, your insurance company when you get hacked or your lawyers that you, you know, you didn't deal with these problems? So I think there's there those can be topics that you can bring up as well. But I think, you know, it's always a that that pain point or knowing that also you mentioned like the bringing in junior developers or just new people into an older code base definitely has its challenges. And it's funny because we were working on helping a company that's Rails 3.0 right now. We're helping upgrade to, we're working towards getting to 3.2 first. So we're a little bit behind even that. It's interesting because our we have a junior developer that's part of that project and she's having, she's struggling to find documentation on old versions of Rails or even old, like old gems that have been removed and people taking them off of, you know, of Ruby gems. And that, that just becomes like this, you know, this hunting process of trying to figure out where this stuff all went on the internet or the way back machine and stuff. So that's, there are, there's a lot of things that are hard to uh, account for until you're actually trying to go through that process. So was there ever conversations internally at GitHub about, well, maybe we should rewrite this at some point, or was that even not really a discussion there? Yeah. And I, I want to like clarify that like hindsight is 2020. It's really easy for me to look at the code base and be like, why did you do this? I wasn't there. I get it. You got to like ship product, you got to ship features. And honestly, like Rails back in the day was more, a little more hostile than we are now. I think we work like really hard to make sure that, that we're not breaking applications. I rewrote configurations in Rails and like, there's a better way to do it, but I did it in a way so like, I don't break your app. I mean, I broke it a little bit, but like, it's not drastically broken. It's one of those things that like, we have to make trade-offs sometimes to improve Rails, but we try really, really hard not to just like outright annihilate your application and us like GitHub being on Rails 6 allows us to help other people upgrade because now we are like oh this was actually too hard in our upgrade so we need to fix it before we release 6 so by us doing that like we can help with that as far as the rewrite question there are there were like some teams that were like what if if we rewrote it then we don't have to upgrade and not, not in Rails like let's rewrite it in this language or that language I think that there are there are some parts of the GitHub application that 
don't belong in GitHub. You know, it was like, it was written to be a Rails app and there's a lot of parts of it that make sense. Your pull request should probably be Rails. Why would you write your pull request? Like, why would you write the code for that in Go? That doesn't make any sense. Some of our Git infrastructure code being in the Rails app doesn't really make sense. It doesn't need to be in there. We can put that on the outside. We can rewrite that whatever we want. Like, that's totally fine. But then it's not just, oh, should we rewrite this? There's stuff that doesn't belong in there because it should be in Rails. So like, that's why I've been working to extract multiple databases so that we can delete hundreds of lines of code because we don't need that. Our application is not about multiple databases. So why do we have multiple database code in our application? And so like, that's one of the things that you can do. Like when you're on a new vert, like upgraded, you can look at your app and say like, what doesn't belong here? And that like question doesn't have to be like, oh, what should I rewrite and go? It could just be, what can I delete? We have our own job queue and we're rewriting it. We're rewriting our jobs to be active job because we don't need our own job queue. Rails has it already. So like, why should we have that code in our app? It's more complex. You can't Google like how it works. The people who wrote it don't work at GitHub anymore. Like we know how it works, but like we don't know it as well as if we hired a bunch of Rails engineers who are like, oh yeah, I worked on active job. It's like, now we know how it works. Everyone knows how it works because it's in Rails. It's not proprietary and it has nothing to do with our, our actual product. So it doesn't belong in our app. I'll be back with my interview with Eileen in just a moment. Hi, it's me, Robbie. I wanted to thank you for listening to the Maintainable Software Podcast. If you're finding these conversations at all remotely valuable, please consider sharing it amongst your peers and or writing a review on Apple Podcasts to help spread the word. Go on, I'll wait. By chance, is Ruby on Rails an important piece of your organization's code base? Perhaps you're several versions behind the latest Rails 6? Perhaps you don't have time to prioritize figuring out how you're gonna take those next steps forward because you're too busy shipping new functionality and keeping users happy. Well, you're in luck. My company, Planet Argon, helps companies with existing Ruby on Rails applications make them better, and as you might guess, more maintainable. We publish a few free resources to help you map out a strategy so that your organization can take bigger steps on that overdue upgrade sooner than later. Please visit planetargon.com rails for more details. Again, that's planetargon.com rails. And now let's get back to our interview with Eileen Ushatel. Was there anything else you kind of wanted to try to touch on in here? Uh, let's see. I think that the biggest thing is like, I, I know it's hard to convince your leadership to do an upgrade. It's not cool. Your customers don't care. I mean, they do care because if you told them that like your app is insecure because you didn't upgrade, they're going to care. It's invisible work. It's easy to be like, it's not a shiny new feature. Our customers don't want it, but it's really, really important. Because if you're like GitHub, you can contribute upstream if you're on a new version. Us on Rails are not going to be like, oh, yeah, cool. You found a Rails 3.2 bug. Like if it's not in 6, we're not going to fix it. That's like one of the reasons to to, to upgrade. But the, but you might not even want to contribute. Maybe you don't have time for that. But the like the biggest reason is just paying down that debt. Your application is going to incur technical debt. But one of the easiest ways to make that debt less is by upgrading. If you just stay up to date, like your application is going to be cleaner, easier to like develop and all that, all that stuff. It's important. And I, I, I get it. Like I've had people come to me and be like, I don't know how to get leadership to do this. I don't have the magic bullet or like the answer to how to do that. One of the ways that you can do it is you can hire a contracting firm to do it for you. 
and then have them set up best practices so that you don't fall behind again. It's not cheaper, <laughs> but it is a way to say like, okay, well, you don't have any engineers who can stop working on features. So, you know, we'll like have an engineer that rotates on and off with the, each engineer will rotate on with the contractors and work on the upgrades so they can learn how to do it, but also like not stop on their features. And that could be a good way to get upgraded, but not have to stop feature work. Cause like, I know if your team's four people, like you can't put four people on an upgrade, but also your upgrade probably won't take a year and a half. GitHub is a really big code base. I don't want people to hear, oh, it took a year and a half. Like screw Rails, like Rails sucks. Like let's go rewrite in microservices because Rails took too long to upgrade. Rails is not the problem here. It's the choices you make in your application. If you rewrite in Go, you're going to make choices in Go that make it hard to upgrade or Java or whatever you rewrite your stuff in. You're going to, your team is going to make choices that hurt your application. And so like, if you just want to not hurt your application, just upgrade all the time, even if it's hard. You bring up a bigger point with the, uh, with rewriting or potentially rewrites, or I think there's sometimes this, uh, this fantasy that we'll not have the same problems again next time. I think often you talked about process and needing to consistently keep things upgraded, then you don't have to worry about it. That same problem can happen with any new language you rewrite in. And if you don't change the team's approach to managing that, then I think you know, you're ultimately going to end up in the same place at some point with just a different technology stack. And then you're going to pivot again and rewrite it again at that point. And so when we're talking with potential clients or people that are going through these types of problems, when we give them our consulting services, you know, you find that there's just, it's usually a people problem of not figuring out like on the people side, how they can prioritize things, how they can, you know, work with, you know, the stakeholders and management on making sure these things get addressed at some point. They're still like at the, at a base level. Sometimes the, the developers themselves just haven't come up with a good workflow. They're like, you know, they're just keep chipping away at the next new features or what have you or bug fixing and, or maybe the team's too small for them to really feel like they could take time out to do that. And as you said, maybe an external resources could help expedite some of that because you do need to keep some consistent momentum on projects like that until you get them kind of back in a good state because those projects are really difficult to kind of like chip away at over time as you've touched on as far as like how people had volunteered in the past but not really been able to make that, you know, actually push that boulder over the hill. But I think once you get up there, you're not, you're not dealing with all new peaks and mountains you have to climb again. It's like some new little ridges or here's the next step in our journey, but it's not, it doesn't need to be the super long, painful process every single time you need to deal with an upgrade, but it will be if you, you put that off for too many years. And I'm trying to remember even when Rails 3.2 came out, that was probably 11, 10 years. So it, it's been a while. That's, that's a long time. There's been a lot of changes since then. So it's also great to know that Rails can still run pretty successful software throughout that period. And so I think it's, it's a good thing on both sides there. It's just, but I'm glad that your, your team was able to do that. And it's a good, it's been helpful for like teams like us to be able to say, Hey, look, it's not impossible to when we talked with the different teams that, that are kind of in similar, in similar boats. Two last questions for you. What book do you find yourself recommending to software developers the most? I think that everyone should read the success of open source. One of the things I found really fun about reading it was how when like the first computers came out, like different companies actually worked together to build the software, the BIOS for it to work. I think it was the BIOS. I don't remember. It was one of the parts of the main operating system to get a bunch of big companies like enterprise levels together to write software like this is crazy. And it's, it's one of those things that I found really interesting. It's like, and we actually do this on Rails a lot. And my dream is to, for it to be like a little bit more official. So we work with Shopify. We're like, okay, we want to, 
like we want multiple databases in Rails. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to do this part. And if you like, you can do the sharding part. And cause like I, we don't, we don't use sharding at GitHub yet. Like we're sort of getting it, but we don't use it in Rails really. So I don't feel comfortable implementing that in Rails. But Shopify uses sharding. So I'm like, we can work together. Like you can add the sharding part next quarter. I know they're going to work on jobs and we have our own rescue fork. We need to work on that too. And so like, I just, I want this like dream of like these big companies and even the small companies like working together in open source into like make Rails better because it's not a like democracy where you can just add whatever you want. But we all have experiences that I don't know what your app is like. I don't know what weird things you've done with your configuration to support multiple databases. So like, I want to know that so that we can make it better and we can support 97% of the use cases. And it's really, really important that we different companies that do open source work together rather than like in your own bubble, because your bubble is just going to get weird. Yeah, I hadn't, I hadn't heard of that book. I'll have to, we'll definitely include a link in the, the show notes. Where can people find you online, Eileen? Uh, you can find me anywhere at Eileen Codes. Uh, that's GitHub, Twitter. Those are the places I use most. Excellent. Well, thanks again for joining us on the show today, Eileen. Thanks for having me.